Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huaytran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So we, we did it, guys. We finally conquered the month of March, or did the month of March conquer us? I don't know. We kicked its ass, Peter. We kicked its ass. We came, we saw, we did that Ghostbusters quote. (laughs) It it seems like it was like the longest month in the history of months. So, I don't know. But we're finally in April. Maybe April will be better, right? You know what? Yes, April will be wonderful. April will be perfect and amazing (laughs) if we all adjust to our new lives in our caves. (laughs) <laughs> okay let's start is that things... an april fool's joke no i, I you know what? The, the pandemic has unlocked optimistic jacob who's choosing to look on the bright side of things because because what else is there if we don't look on the bright side of things damn it so yay i i know the answer to that jacob there there's nothing because i've been experiencing it <laughs> um okay let's talk about what we've been doing let's start first with you jacob what, what have you been doing during this pandemic I've been sitting indoors doing indoor things. Uh, so uh, the few times I left the house was to get supplies, really. So I want to know uh, what grocery stores or convenience stores or shops near you guys are taking this seriously. Uh, I can say, for example, that HEB, a Texas-based uh, store, they were more prepared for the pandemic than the United States government was. There's, an, there's a really good Texas Monthly article about it. Uh, they're a really great company as it is. They pay their employees well. They're involved in lots of commu- communities and charities. They're just a really great company, and they took this seriously first. They gave all their employees emergency raises. They have social distancing marks on the floor so people know where to stand. They have a staggered line outside. They only let a certain number of people in at a time. And they're just, they're, they're, they take it seriously. And uh, when, a few times I've been there during the pandemic, they've been, you know, efficient and clean. And well, maybe well, I sold out, you know, toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Uh, they've had most of what I need. 
and also a Trader Joe's. Uh, they have they only let a certain people in at a time. The staggered line. You, they have they're wiping down all the carts before you, before like right in front of you, but before you know you go in. There's a woman at the front with hand sanitizer, spraying everyone's hands before they go in. It, it it's just in my bubble, in my Austin bubble of Trader Joe's, HEB, in my local convenience store. Where McFeeds store, by the way, put up temporary safety glass. They they rigged together plastic glass and put it all around the couch registers, so there's, so there's a separation between them and the and the customers. Oh wow! Uh, so yeah, so it's in my local experience, people are taking this seriously, and businesses are. So I want to know you guys, how, how's LA? How's the Midwest? How's New York? What's it like over there? Well, in my experience, LA, like the grocery stores are kind of a mess. Like everything's sold out, and it doesn't seem like they have prepared well, at least in like Ralph's. Uh, but at Target, they are a lot more prepared. They have those red marks, like the tape marks on the floor to separate six feet away from each other, leading up to the cash register. And uh, it seems like they've kind of figured things out a little bit more. Although, like, the cashier that did our things, like, didn't have gloves on or anything. And, like, the uh, woman in front of us, like, like had a, like, a total meltdown that this cashier didn't have gloves on and how, like, she could be spreading uh, this virus to her kids and stuff like that. So so that was fun to witness. But I, I, if, if I have any advice to you guys, the listeners out there, it is if you are looking for something that you can't find, try going to, like, a store like CVS or someplace that, like, people wouldn't necessarily go to for it. I'm, I'm not saying that you're going to find toilet paper at CVS, but you might fi- have more luck finding, like, when we went to Target, uh, Kitro was looking for frozen meals, and like almost all their frozen meals were sold out, except for the uh, the vegan and organic stuff because that's what people didn't want um, for whatever reason. <laughs> Maybe because it was more money. I don't know why. But uh, the uh, but tar- at uh, CVS they had a ton of frozen meals. Um, so if you're look if you're dire to look for something that is sold out at your grocery store, I would, I would highly recommend checking like a smaller like convenience store or something they they might have it also speaking of which if you have any elderly folks in your life trader joe's at least the ones near me have a senior hour they will open up an hour early for people above the age of 60 only uh so so they can you know be more isolated so check your trader joe's if you if you if, if you have an older person in your life who needs to chop and won't let you do it for them uh so just fyi about that what, what i really want to know is uh how are things in new york city ht um I actually can't tell you because I haven't been outside in about two weeks. <laughs> I, I have seen photos of you hanging out on your, your stoop or your, like, fire escape or whatever. Yeah, my fire escape is the only time I've been um, outdoors, <laughs> like, outside of the, the walls of my apartment. Um, but, yes, I went to the grocery store maybe, like, two weeks ago, and we did, like, the, we did this big run where we stocked up on a lot of um, things that we could freeze, and we've been kind of subsisting on that since then. Um, but when I was there, my, we don't have a lot of chain, uh, grocery stores near me. Mostly it's local mom and pops. Um, and so the local grocery store nearest to me, um, doesn't really have a lot of social distancing. Wasn't doing a lot of social distancing as far as I could see, but this was two weeks ago, but the, all the cashiers are wearing gloves and masks, which were, um, all pretty, um, uh, encouraging. Um, but, uh, it was just completely empty. Like there were none of the, there were no meats at, at all. All the pasta was gone. Um, 
Although, although they're doing a good job of restocking uh, frequently, more so than I've ever seen before. But I will say that um, soon after I went to my local grocery store, I walked over to the my local Chinese grocery store, which had was had plenty of supplies um and it was also a little bit crowded mostly with like the asian americans and asian people who live in my neighborhood but um if you guys are looking for <laughs> supplies usually the chinese grocery stores or the asian grocery stores will have um them uh still supplied because uh, people are kind of staying away from them because of racism that is sad mm -hmm. but good tip Pro tip there, each day. <laughs> uh, Brad, how have you been feeling it uh, out in uh, Indiana? Uh, honestly, it's not uh, terrible here. Um, it's definitely much better than it is in the major metropolitan areas that you guys are in, like L.A. and New York. Um, we're still out of stuff like toilet paper and disinfectant and stuff like that at our stores. So that's that seems to be the case everywhere. Um, every now and then, like new small shipments, you know, come in. I hear from like people who have gone to the store and stuff, but it's always gone pretty quickly. But otherwise, um, you know, there's uh, there's only been like a handful of cases in the town that I live. Um, but apparently, we were um, advised that we're kind of still in a high risk area since we're our, because of our proximity to Chicago. So they're starting to, I think, maybe think about doing taking things maybe a little more seriously. Not that they're not taking it seriously already because they've already, the governor of Indiana has already declared that only essential travel, you know, uh, should be happening. But at the same time, the businesses that they've deemed essential are pretty much everything still, except for like gyms and uh, hair salons and jewelry shops and stuff like that. Otherwise, almost all of the businesses around here are still open. So, you know, it's um, it's not quite business as usual because the, the couple times that I've gone out to the stores, it's, definitely dead out there. there there aren't a lot of people out driving around um and so it's, it's not anything crazy but definitely uh not as bad as the the more populated areas chris have you left your house since the liquor store incident of 2020 <laughs> yes i have um i haven't you know i've been trying not to go to too many places uh over the weekend i, I went to a few places i actually have to go to the market today which i'm dreading but we'll see how that goes but uh yeah places around here are taking it pretty seriously it depends on where you go um i went to this convenience store in this i don't know if you guys have it, it's called wawa it's pretty big in the new jersey philadelphia area and they had the you know the tape on the floor to you know for the social distancing the six feet social distancing and i was in line and this this old woman behind me was ignoring the tape and she was like right on my back and it was making me very uh, anxious. Not, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to freak out too much about this, but she was like literally like on my back. And I, I wanted to be like, "Hey, lady, get away from me!" But she just kept every time I moved forward, she would just like stick right there. And I was like, "Come on, lady, she's the one at risk here. I'm gonna be fine, but she's the one who's gonna die horribly. So listen up, lady. Pay attention to the tape on the floor." I can just imagine you there standing, fuming, but like you're too uncomfortable to say anything. I mean, yeah, I will never, ever talk to people in public if I don't have to. So I was just standing there like biting my lips, holding my case of water that I had to buy. So, yeah, pay attention to tape on the floor is my advice because it's out there and people are trying to do the right thing but this woman was just uh ignoring me she did have like gloves on though so she was aware of 
the thing. I just, I guess he's just not aware of the the six foot rule. The six foot thing. Yeah. I wish we had Wawa here. Wawa is so good. Wawa is great. Let's all go to Wawa right now. I wish I could go to Wawa. Uh, <laughs> we we don't have Wawas here. Uh, ben, how have you been holding up? Have you been out of the house? Uh, pretty much the same as you, Peter. I, I've I've been you know um, making infrequent grocery runs, like only in times of necessity, and then just not leaving my house beyond that. So um, when I have gone out to places, I've experienced pretty much the same thing as you, although it sounds like I've had maybe a little bit better luck at Ralph's than you have, but nobody cares about what grocery store I shop at. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Brad, what have you been doing during this pandemic other than, you know, staying inside and watching TV? Uh, Well, my parents um, uh, like to hang out with us, uh, you know, at least once on the weekends we get together to like play games or have dinner or something like that. And since my mom is currently home from work because she is a librarian at an elementary school and school is closed here uh she doesn't really have a lot going on right now so she's been getting kind of stir crazy and she wanted to figure out a way for us to play some games uh across uh skype facetime what what have you just video chatting and so she realized that we could easily play pictionary um (laughs) over over skype and so my mom and my dad had they had the the, the ga- actual game with the board uh, and whatnot uh, and all the cards and so they set up a dry erase board in front of their computer and then my my girlfriend and I we we used computer paper that we uh, put on like kind of like an angled surface and had the computer facing ours and we just went through the the whole process of playing Pictionary across FaceTime and it was actually uh, really fun it's it gets a little chaotic and um, challenging when you have to do an all play since it requires both people to uh people on each team to draw the same thing at the same time uh but it was it was still really fun it was a great way to pass the time and it was nice to be able to you know at least uh have a makeshift uh hang out with my parents since we're trying to you know keep them from going out too often and uh still having fun I, I've been wondering this because I'm, I'm I'm kind of getting a little stir crazy and I want to like play some games with my friends, but I haven't really found a good way of doing that over Zoom or you know Skype or whatever. Yeah, you know, the games the games are kind of limited, but there there are some good uh, opportunities out there. What were you gonna say, Jacob? Uh, I was gonna save this for my uh, what we've been playing section. Uh, but I I was part of a uh, online game night. Uh, but instead of doing board games, we use Zoom and we screen shared a Jackbox, the, the series of um, multi, like the normally couch multiplayer games where like, you use your phone as like your controller and you like play trivia and like word games. And they're all available like on every system, including, uh, you know, PC and Steam and all of that. So we set up Zoom. One person launched Steam and screen shared it and we all played Jackbox together. And, and that's like, you know, a lot of really fun, silly comedy games. So we were all able to, like, for example, we were able to put uh, Zoom up on our TV. So all our friends were on our TV and we've had um, the game itself um, on our laptop. So we were able to, like, you know, look at our friends' faces while we play on the, on the screen. It was a really, really good setup. Some of my how friends have been put... wanting to do that, and we were wondering how well it worked. Were that was it like glitchy at all, or there was a little bit of slowdown, but not much. As long as as long as whoever's hosting has good internet, uh, and everybody you know isn't, and nobody has dire internet, it wasn't a problem. We we had a few issues toward the very end of the night, uh, but by that point we were all drunk anyway. <laughs> how did you uh, hook up Zoom to your TV just with an HDMI cord? Uh, yeah, my wife is the one who who set it up. She has all kinds of different screens for work. So uh, I can get you and the listeners details on how she did that uh, in the near future. I'll ask her. I cannot tell you <laughs> exact details. But yeah, it was an HD, a very long HDMI cord connecting uh, the laptop to the TV. Okay. Hmm. 
Uh, okay. Uh, also, also uh, on top of that, also, um, I, I haven't done the Jackbox thing yet, but a friend of mine uh, organized a, a trivia night across Google Hangout where he, he got like um, eight other uh, couples and, and group, fr- group friends to uh, each write a trivia category of 10 questions. And so for two to three hours, we just went through the question, asking the questions and answering them. Uh, and then he kept, you know, score and Excel and everything. And so that was, you know, a, a little bit of a taste of what life used to be like. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't remember at all what life used to be like. AC, <laughs> <laughs> what, what else have you been up to? Well, I talked before about how I've been sitting on my fire escape because that's really the only way I've been going outside. Yeah. And um, we did the we just hung, me and my roommate just hung out on our fire escape Friday night. And we had some white wine, and we're drinking and singing cat songs. And uh, because, you know, there's nowhere else to go. And it actually was not a bad time because of at 7 p.m., everyone uh, started applauding the medical workers because that's um, something that has been ongoing uh, for the past, I think, week or so. So that was cool just to, like, be outside and hear, hear everyone clapping and stuff and to participate in the claps. But mostly we were just, uh, we were the only ones sitting on our balconies, on our, not balcony, it's not that fancy, <laughs> fire escape though, uh, because there were actually quite a lot of people walking around outside and it made me very anxious. I don't know why so many people are walking outside. Uh, another fun thing I did, which is gonna sound a little bit crazy, is that one day when it was raining, I was staring out my window and decided to count how long it would take before I saw someone cross uh in front of my apartment (laughs) and i did this for like half an hour not crazy um and (laughs) it took like it was on average maybe like a minute before i saw a person there's just so many people walking around outside as if there's like not a worry in the world in new york uh granted this is just me in front of like my little stretch of block in front of my apartment but uh in queens but um i just want everyone to you know stay home and be more careful about social distancing guys HT, have you and your roommate decided to kill each other yet? Um, my, my, my wife and I are holding it pretty well. We give each other space during the day. Um, we, we like that. We like when we work, we work separately, so we don't get each other's nerves. Uh, but how is that holding up when you, when you're cooped up with the same person uh, who's not your spouse? Yes. Uh, well, we're doing pretty well. We we've been friends since uh, college, so we've known each other a long time, which means we do know each other's buttons. But uh, and we do work in sort of the same space because I have my little workspace in the dining room and she's been working at the dining room table. Um, and another fun thing is that our faucet uh, in the in the kitchen, our sink faucet, has started leaking. <laughs> so it started leaking like the day that we both started working from home together, and uh, it's been leaking ever since. And um, so that's been fun. Uh, but we haven't killed each other yet. But I'm pretty sure this is how the lighthouse started. But you know what? It's fine. Nothing is ha- is wrong. Everything is happy. Everything is fine. Oh god, HG, I just realized the lighthouse is the best possible quarantine movie, or the worst possible quarantine movie. Like we shall watch the lighthouse this week. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but I think it comes on uh, Amazon Prime Video on April sixteenth. I want to say, so I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> look, look I, when I saw that last year, I said it was one of the best movies ever made about having a bad roommate. Uh, it's going to doubly apply now. Now that we're all living in close proximity to each other. Yeah, my roommate and I have been quoting The Lighthouse to each other every time we cook for each other. And, uh, you know, the, the steak monologue. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it's been, you know, we've, we've been going by. It's fun. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh, this week, I got in the mail The Art of the Rise of Skywalker, 
Uh, this is a new book in that that whole series that they do, showing all the concept art, the development of these Star Wars films, and they're always so cool to look at. They're, but they're not just cool to look at. Like they they are great like coffee table books to like skim through and just like admire like the different takes and you know some some are like what you see in the movie. Some are drastically uh, different. Some are deleted scenes. Like there's a scene with a. Uh, Kylo Ren encountering this oracle, which is this like spider like creature on top of a gigantic like baby head. It looks so weird and so cool. And it was something they shot for the movie, but didn't make it into the movie. Uh, There's like just interesting concept designs. Like at one point they were exploring the idea of the resistance having a tank that like functioned like BB-8. So the tank was like this circular thing and the, at the top of it was like the the bridge where the people are and the the tank just like rolls through over things i guess i don't know there's a lot of interesting things in there and like i said it's not just to like look at the pretty pictures there's a lot of like little quotes from the designers there's excerpts from like meetings uh between like the S- star wars story uh executives and stuff like that it's some some even quotes that are like predate the force awakens and you're seeing like how some some of the stuff uh some of the idea early ideas have paid off and stuff like that uh i would highly recommend it i like all these books the 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 art of the uh star wars books are all great uh highly recommended Uh, brad didn't you also get this yeah i did actually and i i I don't think i've looked through it quite as uh in depth as you have but i did flip through it when i first got it um i especially went to the end because i wanted to see if they had a lot of concept art for different variations on the Emperor coming back and Exegol and the the various ships that they put in the massive uh, Resistance fleet at the end. But unfortunately, uh, like the previous two books in the, the Art of Star Wars series, uh, they don't include the climax of the movie in the uh, pages of concept art that are within the book. Um, both for Force Awakens and Last Jedi, they put art from the end of those movies into the next books. So the end of Force Awakens, they had art in the Last Jedi book, and the Last Jedi ending had art in this book that just came out. But unfortunately, I, it's not clear if we're going to be able to get to see that art at some point in any other book because there's no next movie that's coming for them to put uh, the, the climactic Rise of Skywalker concept art in there. So it's kind of disappointing because that was honestly what I wanted to see the most there's still some really cool stuff in this book like you said there, there really is some gorgeous pieces of concept art and fascinating alternate concept designs um you know for like characters like babu frick and and whatnot but i was really uh disappointed that they didn't have a lot of that uh, in there especially since they delayed the book three months because it was originally supposed to be released day and date with the movie in december and a lot of people i think hoped that they would uh they delayed it to include some of that uh ending artwork but it's it's not there yeah, maybe it'll be in like the special edition, the art of the Skywalker saga uh, book set, which I'm sure we'll get in a few years. Maybe, maybe we'll eventually get that uh, that Rinsler behind the scenes of the Force Awakens book. Uh, that would be great if they did that for each of these movies. <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully someday. Like you know what? Honestly, those kind of books, I feel like are better when you give some time away from the production and it doesn't come out in during the release because then you have a lot more honesty i think people get saltier (laughs) yeah so uh so so you know what maybe like you know the star wars sequel trilogy us getting books on that uh maybe it's better off getting that in five ten years from now so um ben what have you been writing or reading 
Uh, I read a book, or I'm actually still reading. I'm 25 pages away from the end, but I'm confident enough to recommend this book, and I wanted to talk about it. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World by Stephen Broussat, I think is how you pronounce his last name. And he is a paleontologist. Uh, I believe he is a professor at the University of Edinburgh uh, right now. And um, man, this book is really, really awesome. It's, it's nonfiction, so it's like... A, a true history of um, how the dinosaurs came to be, like what the world was like back then. Um, everything from like their environments to, you know, evolution stuff, um, like how they, yeah, like how they evolved over the years, all the different types and everything. It's, it's so interesting because I have not really given dinosaurs a thought since I was a kid, aside from, you know, like the Jurassic Park movies or something. But like every kid seems to be super into dinosaurs for a little while. And then, I just sort of gave up on them and never really looked into them too much. But reading this book, which is written, you know, he's an academic, but it's written very much like for the lay person. It's, it's super easy to read, really, really digestible. Um, this book uh, paints this vivid picture and, and gets you interested in dinosaurs again. So if anybody has a, even a passing interest, I would definitely recommend checking this out. There's so many like interesting facts and stuff in here that I never knew. And a lot of the things that, you know, you think, you know, from museum exhibits and stuff, he says basically like a lot of those things are just made up. Like people don't know what they're talking about. So wait, wait, he comes what? It, yeah. He says that there are like, you know, a lot of times, in museum exhibits, there will be like, um, uh, man, if I could find the actual excerpt from this, this I should have had this section pulled up. But um, <laughs> he basically says, like, there are uh, times when people will just like put, uh, you know, a T-Rex used to weigh this much. And isn't that wild? And like, they're just guessing a lot of times and they don't actually know what they're talking uh... about. So he comes at it from like a purely scientific perspective. Like he has, uh, you know fossilized evidence that he is himself has found out in the field to back up his his uh, claims about you know the way the world used to be um and i don't know if you guys remember but several years ago there's like this whole kerfuffle about how like dinosaurs maybe had feathers and stuff and he's like one of the people sort of at the forefront of that uh discovery chain and like he's studied all this stuff and found out that like tons of different types of dinosaurs including t-rex had feathers and like a lot of them were multicolored and they were talking about like what kind of crazy uses these feathers would have been because obviously t-rexes couldn't fly but like you know was it more like peacocking kind of stuff where it was like to attract mates and all that um t-rex there's so many like interesting facts in here like t-rex gained 1700 pounds a year <laughs> on in body weight like to get from you know a tiny creature to the full beasts that we know them as and wow. i don't think any of them survived more than 30 years so that like that level of growth in that short a period of time is like unheard of um and also at the very end of the book there's this really incredible blow-by-blow uh, blow description of basically the end of the age of dinosaurs when the asteroid or comet or whatever crashed into the planet and it's like told from a dinosaur's perspective and using you know all of the scientific evidence on hand to like really paint the picture in a vivid and frankly horrifying way that I never thought about before because that's one of those things when you're a kid it's just sort of like oh yeah an asteroid hit and like the dinosaurs were wiped out and maybe you know that like you know dust w clogged the skies and so all, all the plants died 
died off and whatever. And it was sort of a, a bad thing, but you just sort of move on from there. But like the level of detail in here of like what exactly happened to the planet and the dinosaurs and the creatures that were still living in that time is uh, unlike anything I've ever read before. So the book is called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. And I would definitely check it out. Um, even if, you know, it's not like I was, um, I've been obsessed with dinosaurs or anything. I think it's a good a jumping off point to sort of reinvigorate your interest in that. If that sounds like something that you want to explore during this uh, quarantine time, I'd say go for it. I just bought it right now, Ben. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I think you'll really like it. It sounds like such a Jacob book. I was so obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid, and especially around the time Jurassic Park came out. Does Does this book have like a lot of concept art of like the feathered dinosaurs? Uh, there's some. It's a lot of photos of the actual fossils and stuff, especially the ones that this guy himself has has found. But there there are like at the head of each chapter, there are illustrations of what the dinosaurs probably looked like with uh, like T-Rex with feathers and stuff <laughs> like that. And they weren't like full on uh, quill size feathers. They're more like tufts of hair and stuff. They, he describes it way better than I am right now in the book. So, uh, yeah, yeah, read that. Check it out. It's just so weird to me. Like, I, I feel like it's maybe because I grew up with the, you know, the lizard non-feathered dinosaurs, and I, I totally believe they have feathers. All the, it seems like a lot of the scientific evidence proves that they have feathers. But like every time I see like concept art of dinosaurs with feathers, like my brain can't compute. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we need like a movie. Like we need like a Disney nature, like the rise and fall of dinosaurs adaptation uh, to like CG and show us this, like for us to get it in our consciousness of like, this is how it probably was. Yeah. They, he talks about how like the scientists that he worked with or or continues to work with make 3d renderings of the dinosaurs all the time, like uh, to sort of test the physics of how they moved and how they attacked and ate and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like the technology, exists it's just you know we need like a, a major studio to uh to put the funding down to actually make a documentary like that that would be awesome okay last week we were all talking about tiger king and by we all i mean uh i believe chris and myself were the only two people who had seen it at that point but everybody was talking about it uh it, it seems like everybody needs to see this uh this documentary series it was funny i remember ht in our slack channel was like fine i'll watch tiger king uh hg what did you think of tiger king i liked it it was just as wild and insane as you guys were talking about like the characters in this docuseries are just they're all so unsympathetic and terrible and yet you can't stop watching it's like a watching a train wreck or something um i do wish that the documentary series itself talked more about the actual sort of big cat uh, industry, I guess you would say, or like whatever like this um, this business is and like how it exploits and uh, abuses these animals. Because I feel like it kind of skirts around it and it gets a little caught up in the personalities of the people involved, as we all do. Um, so which is – so at, I think it kind of came around – back to it at the end where it shows a little montage of all of these animals who have who are still like in captivity and it gives you all these facts about how many tigers are still being bred and traded etc in America and I think it kind of comes around it's like oh yeah this is also what this documentary series is about but I feel like it should have that should have been a little bit more to the forefront that being said Joe Exotic is insane <laughs> and I just yeah it's just um, 
man, it's a it's a wild it's a wild ride of a docu series. If I had to ask you, HT, did Carol kill her husband? What would oh, you? Oh, for what, sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Brad, <laughs> what did you think of uh, Tiger King? Yeah, it's uh, wild, and you know, it's 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 interesting though. I I feel like pretty much every character in this series is extremely unlikable and unethical and they do terrible things but i do there's times when i think that you do feel sorry for joe exotic because it seems like he had probably a rough go of it when he was younger i I think it was jacob who uh talked about this a little bit in our slack when we were just you know uh talking about the show in that the there's a podcast that focused on the same story that talked about how what his life was like Uh, as a gay man living in Oklahoma City where there aren't really a lot of gay men around. And I feel like he probably is the way he is because he had such a shitty life growing up and was, you know, mistreated and probably didn't get, you know, the kind of affection from whoever that he did, which is why he's so, you know, desperate to find somebody to be married to all the time in this show. And all his relationships just, you know, end tragically because of his irresponsibility and, you know, everything else happening around him. Um, and I, I agree with HT. I do wish there was a little bit more about, you know, kind of just the the big kit, cat issue, which, um, you know, I think probably deserves a little bit more attention than the pure entertainment that comes from seeing this wild story unfold and all these, you know, just crazy characters. But I, I you know, enjoyed watching it. We, my girlfriend and I, you know, we kept watching one episode and we'd be like, okay, let's watch one more. Uh, you know, it's it's you get hooked on it and you just want to keep seeing what happens. And it's every episode has some new shocking revelation that you're just like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Uh, so I got to ask you, did Carol do it? Oh, absolutely. Carol is nuts. <laughs> She's a sociopath. And like, yeah, no doubt in my mind that, that she killed her husband. Also, uh, I feel like the I don't know. I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but uh this, do you do you do you think Joe set the fire or someone who hated him? I think that it's I think it's pretty safe to say that Joe probably did it, yeah. especially after you find out the stuff that was there and things that were going on around that time. Yeah, uh, Jacob, I'm very interested to hear your take on this because you originally listened to this as a podcast, or not this as a podcast because it's its own separate thing, concentrating on like the true crime element that this story becomes. So, what did you think of Tiger King? I really like it. I'll echo a lot of what everybody else said. Uh, the podcast version, it's, on, it's the second season of the show, um, Over Your uh, over My Dead Body, which is, um, shit, is it Over Your Dead Body, Over My Dead Body? I can't remember the exact how the podcast, but each season is a uh, true crime story about, about somebody who wants somebody else dead, uh, and this was season two. And they have different approaches. Uh, the the uh, scope of the show is a bit wider. Uh, like Characters like Doc Antle are not featured in the podcast because the podcast is more focused directly on Joe himself. Um I think at times the show is maybe a little indulgent, like featuring a, char- like a character riding uh, a jet ski in slow motion to eye the tiger just to make fun of him is at odds with, you know, the message the show is trying to create. But there's no denying that the footage here is remarkable. And the fact that they have so much access to all these people who are willing to say so much on camera boggles my mind. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Peter Carol Baskin totally did it. And Joe set the fire. And, and by the way, I think they've actually Wondery. Is this a podcast from Wondery? Yes, it is. It, they've renamed it and re-released it as Joe Exotic uh, Tiger King. So, oh god, that, 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 that kind of annoys me because they were there first, and now they're trying to ride the coattails of Netflix. I, that, uh, yeah, uh, 
So if you if you're looking for it, that's how you can find it. Or you could just type in Tiger King podcast. Um, is there anything that the podcast does better than the documentary? Uh, it does dwell more on uh, Joe's upbringing. Uh, he was sexually abused as a kid, and uh, trying to be a, a a gay man in Oklahoma is it re- really shaped him uh, and shaped it, like like he's such a defiant, angry personality. Is is him trying to protect himself? Also, there are more uh, vivid descriptions of animal abuse. There is um, a particularly harrowing se- section where somebody uh, describes Joe executing a series of tigers with a handgun. That is not that's not in the series, and uh, I was really worried about that. Uh, if, if there may be footage that existed, I have to watch it. So there's, there's, if anything, the animal stuff is even harsher in the podcast. Uh, so it's word of warning on that. The guy that uh, reported in the podcast, the guy that put the podcast together, he did a Q and A on Twitter, I think, last week or the week before, whenever this this movie or this series came online. Uh, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes because he answers quite a bit of questions that give, I think, a little bit more perspective on, uh, uh, away from what the documentary showed. And um, just like some insights, like I, I didn't know, you know, Joe's first husband who died of, I believe, HIV uh, illnesses, related illnesses. Um, after that, you know, you see in this documentary him uh, subsequent husbands who uh are did we know that both hus- or all the husbands were straight? Yeah, he falls in love with straight men, right? Yeah, straight men who are taking advantage of him. Yeah, and um, in uh, this author's uh, context, he he basically describes that he, he he likes to think of it as uh, Joe was so emotionally heartbroken after that 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 first death that he never wanted to get into a relationship that was that emotionally deep so that's why he got involved with these straight men so it, it, i don't know there's some interesting insights like that uh, i'll put the link to that in the show notes uh because i think it's interesting uh but yeah i think we're we're all on the same uh same level here we, we all think people should see this series yeah absolutely if only so you can understand all the memes it, it's inspired so many memes yeah so ben join us <laughs> I think I'm skipping this one, guys. I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, what have I been watching this week? I we I watched Castaway. Uh, you know, uh, Tom Cruise got or Tom Hanks got sick, and when he got sick, there was this whole thing that was circulating around the internet of someone like one of the people in the hospital handing him a volleyball that looked like Wilson, but it was actually a Photoshop thing. It wasn't even real. But uh, at the time, uh, my girlfriend Ketra admitted to me that she had never seen Castaway. So we decided to watch it uh, because she had never seen it. And boy, th- th- this movie, I think, really holds up. It really feels like uh, it really feels timeless uh, aside from you know, some references to technology, like he has a, a beeper. There's like a the whole thing about him looking at his beeper and stuff like that. But aside from that, it, it's just a really great movie, really great visual storytelling. Uh, you know, when he, he lands on the island and he has like the all the stuff, uh, you know, that has washed ashore and like how he is able to turn those things into tools and stuff and how it's all presented with almost no dialogue and you learn the lessons on screen. It's just so well crafted, and I wish we had this Robert Zemeckis back with us 
um, the Robert Zemeckis before he got obsessed with technology. Uh, it's just such a great movie, and I, I, I really enjoy it. I, I know it, it gets a little sappy and a little corny uh, at times, but I also think it takes some some twists that – or not twists, but like it, it takes some turns that I think – are not what you would expect from like a big Hollywood movie. Like what what happens when he comes back? I feel like you know the big way of of, of handling that is not the way they handle it in, in the the movie itself. So I I, I don't know. I, I hot take guys, but uh, Castaway is a good movie. So uh, Kitcher liked it a lot. Um, this weekend we binge watched Ozark season three. This is the series from Jason Bateman. He is a writer. He is a director. Uh, he is a producer. Um, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. Ozark season one was kind of like a combination of justified and breaking bad. And it, it takes place with this man and, uh, his family who kind of get involved in, uh, in laundering money for a cartel. And they go to the Ozarks to set up a business that they can handle there. Uh, Ozark season two, kind of goes off the rails a little bit. It's, it's, it's a little bit like Westworld in, in that respect of that. It becomes a little bit ridiculous and almost like you kind of feel bad watching it. And I know, uh, Ben, <laughs> I think was a, like personally took it, it took offense to the second season of Ozark. Was, I just right? didn't finish it. I just I thought that the first season was like pretty good and like yeah. pretty riveting, and the characters made decisions that I thought were intelligent, and and I could see where they're coming from, and then everything sort of slowly started falling apart and making less sense in the second season to the point where I was just like no longer invested in any of the stories of the main characters. So for me, when I don't really care that much about the characters in a show, that's normally a sign of the time when I pull the ripcord. Yeah, you bailed. Um, Well, you know, watching this first episode, I was like, wow, this is kind of like Westworld. They're kind of doing this soft reboot with this family, uh, the Bird family, they, uh, I guess, spoilers for season one and season two is Ozark, but they, they end up with a riverboat casino, and th- they're owning this riverboat casino. They're competing with other riverboat casinos, and they're also doing their money laundering operation, and, it, you know, uh, everything is not uh, well uh, between the, uh, the the two parents there. And uh, it, it is kind of like a soft reboot of sorts. It feels like that at least... For the first episode or two, and then, and it feels more grounded. Like the first season was very grounded, and you, uh, there was some relatability. And then, um, this uh, the season three also goes off the rails, kind of like season two. It, there's people making decisions, like you said, that you don't buy that they'd be making the decisions. It feels like they're almost they're making the decision to further the plot, not their character and what they would be doing. Um, it, it, it kind of annoys you. It, it annoyed me. Definitely. Um, it, uh, it, it's still, and I still think there's a lot of good in here, but I do, uh, kind of feel bad watching it. I, I think I, I forget who, maybe it was Dave Chen tweeted out something like, uh, he just binge watched all of season three of Ozark and he like feels horrible. about Um, <laughs> uh, but like, it, it, I definitely relate to that, but I, I still think it's, Worth writing it out, even though it uh, has it definitely has all the problems that you said. Then, um, not defending it in any way, I will say that Jason Bateman elevates all of this. Like anytime he's on screen and he's acting, he, he's just 
great and uh he directs a couple episodes here and he he's a good director uh i i like um oh my god uh who's uh the wife uh i'm blanking laura lenny laura lenny yeah she she's she's always awesome and uh but i i think really the mvp of the show for me is uh julia garner she's like the 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 young woman who kind of heads up his operation and she has a lot of spunk to her. And I'm excited to see her do some more things outside of Ozark and see what her range is. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure if I can totally recommend Ozark season three, but if you watch season two and you weren't, uh, you know, you didn't totally bail like, like Ben, uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, give Ozark season three a, a try. We, 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 we binge watched it like in like one day. So it's, it's that kind of thing where it's enjoyable, bad. But uh, there is some good – I don't know. I feel like there is – there are some very high highs in this. There's some elevated stuff like, uh, you know, Garner's performance, Bateman's performance, Lenny's performance. Uh, And there's some good, like, twists. Like, this season ends with uh, some some pretty big twists that I think are going to keep me watching this into the future of the show. So, yeah. So I'm in. Um, Another show I want to talk about that I saw this week – was Dark Side of the Ring. This is a show that is on Vice. Uh, I think you can get like, uh, like Vice has a thing where you can see some episodes free every month or something like that. But also the first two episodes are on YouTube for free. So you don't need to do that if you don't want to. But I, I talked about this, this series last year when the first season aired. And this is a documentary series. It's an anthology series where each episode takes a look at a a true story in pro wrestling and kind of like the heartbreaking, horrible world that it can be. And just like, uh, you know, bad things happening, sometimes murders, sometimes suicides, sometimes both murders and suicides, <laughs> sometimes uh, much worse. Uh, there's the, the season two, and this is directed by uh, Jason Eisner, who, who's a good director. I loved his short film, True Venge, and he did a, a feature film, Hobo with the Shotgun, which I didn't like as much. Uh, but I highly recommend Treevenge is a movie, a short film that I watch every Christmas. So if you've never seen that, put that on your list of things to see. But he he's a hardcore star, uh, hardcore uh, pro wrestling fan. And you can tell he dives into these seasons. That It's a mix of these talking head interviews and these uh, cinematic recreations kind of like showing you know actors playing these people but kind of like in silhouette so you don't really quite get a uh, look at everything um this season two the the season two starts off with a two-part uh premiere so it's it's two episodes and it ta- and it's telling the story of chris benoit um which is a heartbreaking horrible story he's this wrestler who is from canada who uh who you know went down the the you know got addicted to drugs he uh steroids it, it, what ends up happening in the end is he ends up committing suicide but before he committed suicide he murders his wife who was a wrestler and his uh young son in their home uh, it's like a murder suicide it's uh, the the question of this uh episode or this two part episode is kind of like you know what? What is the blame? What is the human story behind this? Um, are drugs to blame? Is concussion syndrome to blame? Is pro wrestling to blame? Uh, I, I don't think this answer is why, but it's a thoughtful 
emotional examination of the entire story. Uh, the good thing about this is I think the first season of Dark Side of the Ring didn't have the cooperation of a lot of people in pro wrestling because they were afraid to kind of like be part of this and telling the stories. It did have some big people, but this this one definitely has some bigger names like uh, uh, Chris Jericho, who was a longtime WWE uh, champion. Uh, he he is in this episode uh, giving some stories and stuff. You get all like the the big names, which I don't think could have happened in season one. And uh, I, one of my criticisms the last uh, season, I think, was that some of the when they showed actual footage of the wrestling events that they're talking about, they would do this thing where they would kind of like, you know, add some distortion and stuff to the footage, and that, that they're doing that less in this season. So I think they got the note that people just wanted to see clearer footage. We get it. It's 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 you know archival footage. We we. we know that it's not a dramatic reenactment um but uh this this is uh you know it's a sad story and i i think it does it justice in all respects it uh it does justice to the victims to nancy his wife to the young son daniel uh i, I would uh recommend it if you're at all interested in uh what happens behind the scenes of pro wrestling and like how you know how someone can be brought to like a murder suicide like that. Not that this explains why, but it, it kind of, it, it, you know, it, it, it dives deep. It dives deeper than I, I think a lot of, uh, these kind of document documentary series do into this kind of stuff. So I, I would recommend this. Uh, this is dark side of the ring. It's on vice, but you can get the first two episodes on YouTube now. Um, and I've been watching some screeners. I can't talk about, but I also have been, I watched season three, episode three of Westworld. Uh, la- last uh, week, I said I was still in. I- I'm really enjoying this season. I, I didn't quite, I- I'm still not quite, uh, or I was saying that I wasn't quite sure what Chris was talking about, where this is going to kind of like delve back into like the BS of season two. I'm now, I think, seeing some, some aspects of that, Chris. <laughs> in episode three um it definitely seems like it's setting up some 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 big like pull the rug out from under you twists in a way that's gonna be annoying like there's a character in this episode who it is a uh without spoilers but uh there's a character who is a a robot but we don't know who the actual character is inside of them and that is kind of like the big question of this episode, and it's very frustrating. It, it is not satisfying to like watch something and like not know because you, you can't. I don't know. It, it's just very, very frustrating. But I would say at the same time, this show is also introducing some ideas with this future world that I'm very much enjoying. Like uh, I mentioned last week that they, or maybe two weeks ago, that they introduced this whole company that has this like, AI algorithm in our future where they can kind of predict like uh, that they are like recommending what we should do in our lives because they, they know that that's going to be the best thing for us. And that's like the future. Um, what we learned in this episode, I guess, minor, minor spoiler of a reveal is that this, this company basically has created uh, the, this algorithm that can tell it knows what we have done in the past and it, it, it kind of predicts what we're going to do in the future. And because of that, um, you know, some characters in 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 this world maybe like you know, 
because they don't have a long future, they won't get the job that they want or whatever. So it, it I, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to go f- too far into this, but I, I think there's a very interesting conversation to be had here of algorithms and um, I'm trying to talk through this without spoiling it, Spo- you know, ruining anything for anybody who hasn't seen this episode. But my, I'll put it in this perspective. I've my last year spent a lot uh, playing with the YouTube algorithm and like the I've been doing um ordinary adventures and making content there. And it's interesting that there's people trying to like, you know, feed this algorithm The algorithm, you know, decides one day that this type of video is the thing that people want to see. So people then end up making videos for that algorithm, uh, to try to feed the algorithim, uh, because the, originally the algorithm is trying to service the people that are clicking. Right. But now they're creating this content to serve the algorithm. And then now there's all this content and that's the only content. And then the people that clicked on that originally are being recommended more of that stuff. So they're now not getting service to the people. Like you're servicing the algorithm and not the people. I'm not sure if any of that makes sense, but uh, it makes a lot more sense in Westworld. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's a uh, scary look at our future and how uh, that that could uh, come back to bite us in, in major ways. I mean, it already is right now on YouTube and like in you know news and Google searches. Uh, but yeah, so I, I'm a little bit worried about where Westworld is heading, but I'm still in. Uh, I, I guess, Chris, how many episodes did you see? Uh Four or five, I can't Four remember. or five, okay, so you still have a glimpse into my future. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, so that's all I've been watching this week. Brad, what have you been watching? Um, in addition to Tiger King, I also watched The Talented Mr. Ripley for the first time ever. Um, this is a movie that I have been putting off for years. It's always been like in various uh, queues whenever it pops up and hops around the streaming services. And I've always been intending to watch it. And for whatever reason, I just bail on it and never have. But I finally did. My girlfriend and I both watched it. Um, and this is such a good movie. Um, I I loved it. It has uh, the feel of like um, a, a classic Hitchcock movie. And the way Matt Damon and Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow all play it, um, it, it feels like it was, you know, made decades ago without, um, you know, being overacted or or hammy. Um, it's, you know, suspenseful. All the performances are outstanding. It's, it's one of those movies too, where it's kind of incredible. The twists and turns there are, and the way it keeps surprising you. And you think, you know, you know, finally, you know, something is about to happen. Then it's like, nope, uh, changes directions again. And it's just, uh, yeah, an outstanding movie. I think Ben, you just talked about this recently, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I saw it on Netflix for the first time and maybe like since it's release in what, 99 or 2000 or something. And I, I was very, very impressed with it. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, and then on the uh, much more mediocre end of the spectrum, I watched The Ringer for the first time. Uh, the, the Johnny Knoxville movie where he uh, pretends to be mentally challenged in order to rig the Special Olympics. Um, as you can imagine, it hasn't aged very well, but... <laughs> But at the same time, it's it's interesting. So because I was watching it, and I'm like, man, like how did they they do they do this? And back at the time when the movie was made, back in 2005, they were actually endorsed and supported by the by the Special Olympics because uh, they thought that even though there were jokes that were you know poking fun at, at mentally challenged people in a way, 
that the mere, mere exposure of the Special Olympics and the fact that they had over 150 real Special Olympics athletes as like extras and stuff in the movie uh, was still a good thing for them. But the, it's it's tough, like because the movie does have some heart, and it's not purely with full of humor where it's making fun of the mentally challenged people. But the, a lot of the humor comes from laughing at mentally challenged characters for being goofy and so like it doesn't just doesn't always work and plus it doesn't help the fact that only two of the actual mentally challenged characters who are part of the main ensemble cast are actually people with down syndrome the rest of them are actors just pretending which makes it worse um but like even then i just i don't know even with the endorsement in 2005 and it coming from you know a bit of a different time when i guess this was not quite so politically incorrect the movie just isn't that funny still like there, there's a couple moments that i laughed out loud um but otherwise it's just it just feels kind of lame and i honestly couldn't believe that this was a fox searchlight movie uh if you can believe that so uh yeah don't don't watch the ringer i guess <laughs> did anybody else see the ringer when it came out no no i i honestly did not even remember that that's what it was about that is crazy that that was made I, in our recent past. I will say that the the reason that Johnny Knoxville is uh, scheming the the Special Olympics it's not it's not his idea. It's actually his uncle's idea, uh, who's played by Brian Cox, who's one of the funny, funnier parts of the movie. And the reason they're doing it is because through a series of mishaps, Johnny Knoxville ends up employing this janitor who used to work at his office but got fired and he felt sorry for him so he gave him a job mowing his lawn at his house and was paying him like a real paycheck with health benefits but he didn't get around to giving him the health insurance and a lawnmower cuts off this guy's fingers and he can't afford to pay for the surgery so he's trying to get that money to help this guy who needs his fingers sewn back on so it's not like he's scheming because he just wants money there's like a good reason behind it but it still doesn't oh, really help so, so it's all okay then it's all fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then I watched um, the uh, the second season of AP Bio. I I never actually got around to watching the the full season when it was on uh, last spring, almost a year ago. And I finally got around to binging through it. It's been sitting on my DVR this whole time. And holy crap, I like this show, show from the first season. It was really good, hilarious, sharp, and funny. It has got even better in the second season to the point where it's becoming one of my favorite comedy series. Um, if, if you don't remember it, you didn't hear me talking about it before, or you're hearing about it for the first time. Uh, it's created by Michael Bryan, who is a writer on SNL and he was on, on the cast as a featured player for a short time. And it stars, um, Oh shit. What am I? Uh, uh, Glenn, uh, more shower from, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Glenn Howison. Glenn, Glenn Howison. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia as this disgraced Harvard professor who ends up uh, going back to his hometown of Toledo and teaching AP Bio to a group of high school kids. But instead of actually teaching them, he decides to use them to help get revenge on this fellow Harvard colleague uh, whose career is going a lot better than his. Um, and it's blossomed to be a lot more broad than that. And it's just it's so funny. The kids in this show are what really make it because the, the reaction shots that they have spliced throughout the series when he's doing stuff in the classroom, the 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 people who play the, the students are all hilarious. I, I seriously love each and every one of them, and they're all different characters and funny for a variety of reasons. Uh, but Pat Oswalt is also on this show, uh, Paula Pell, and it just has an outstanding cast, and it is laugh-out-loud hilarious. Unfortunately, the only way you can watch it right now 
uh, is if you get it through NBC.com, I think, because it's not on uh, streaming service anymore, and it's supposed to be on Peacock when it launches because they're moving the third season over there after it initially got canceled on NBC. So you might have to wait a little while to make it easier to watch it, but I really hope that they promote the hell out of the return of the series and make those first two seasons available as soon as possible because the show is great and I, I hope it gets a chance to stick around for a while. Okay. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, in desperate need for something to binge, like a complete show that has a lot to offer, uh, I started watching for the first time straight through New Girl. Yay! A, yep, a, a show that inspired by the fact that my wife loves this show and the fact that HT pushed for it during our Best TV of the Decade uh, episode a few months back. And I've seen enough of this show beforehand to know it was funny, but I'm really appreciating it more watching it straight through. Uh, the premise is so simple. It's just quirky girl moves into a new apartment with uh, three male roommates. Uh, and while that premise is, you know, you could have made that premise in the 70s. It's, it's, it's as boilerplate as it comes. You can't fake chemistry. And the five leads of this show just have this, this unbeatable, like, magic. There's electricity between all of them. Uh, Zoe Deschanel, Jake Johnson, Max Greenfield, Hannah Simone, and Lamorne Morris are just uh, outstanding. They're so funny and so charming. And even when the plotting is maybe sitcom generic, th these five being in the same room uh, – it's, it's radiant, especially uh, between Zoe Deschanel and Jake Johnson. I mean, I've always liked Jake Johnson when I've seen him in other things, but uh, watching him, like, sit down, sitting down watching him star in a TV series, you know, for multiple episodes, you, you realize, my God, this guy is a friggin' star. Like, I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with Jake Johnson more, more than I was before, I'll say that much. So I, I still have, all seven seasons are streaming on Netflix right now. I still have a long way to go. I'm looking forward to being, like, you know, my sit down in the evening, have dinner, watch three episodes at one show for a little while. Uh, and it's it's really, really, it's a really nice show. It's really funny, and it's just real enough to, you know, have an edge, but also sweet enough to never, to be, like, a, a good time. Uh, HT, at what point should I be prepared for the downfall? I know all long-running sitcoms have that bad season. Oh, um, there is a, a, um, sort of, uh, a rut, I think, in the maybe fourth fifth season although it's just kind of it's just kind of mostly on the inconsistent part like it's never really terrible it just kind of loses a little bit of the magic of the early seasons um but i will say that once the main uh romantic leads get together it doesn't actually lose as much of the uh spark as it has at the beginning because that's a big fear when they when you have a will they won't they in a sitcom like this but it actually works really well with just the overall chemistry of the cast yeah, and uh, HD. Uh, I just want to say that uh, Jake Johnson's Nick. Uh, I I love him. I want to fix him. I want to. I want Yay! to. Yeah, I want to cuddle him and tell him it's going to be okay and to calm down. <laughs> I love him so much. My God, I'm so happy you love him too, Jacob. Uh, anyway, on the darker side of things, I watched The Gift for the first time in a few years. I watched this on an airplane years ago. It's uh, Joel Edgerton's uh, directorial debut. He also wrote the script and he co-stars in it. It's uh, Jason Bateman uh, and. Uh, Rebecca Hall play a married couple who move to a new house and uh, they encounter uh, an old high school acquaintance of Jason Bateman's character played by Edgerton himself and slowly dark truths uh, begin to surface and things start falling apart. And this is a really grim, serious drama. It's a kind of movie that it's a, it was, it's very low budget. It's a Blumhouse release, uh, I think 2015. And it's not, it's not really a horror movie. It's a, it's a dark drama. Uh, it's maybe halfway between a soap opera and a South Korean revenge movie, <laughs> but it's not necessarily violent or it, it walks a fine line. I mostly like it a lot, but what I like most about it is that it, 
it makes perfect use of Jason Bateman, which I believe, which uh, the outsider used as well. I'm, I presume, I presume uh, Ozark does as well. Whereas Jason Bateman is the kind of actor who is really good at playing somebody who should be trustworthy, but something's wrong, something's off about him. And uh, The Gift uses him extremely well. Uh, has anyone else here seen The Gift in, or, or have any fond feelings for it? I, I love this movie. I, I really wish Joel Edgerton would make more movies because it's such a solid little thriller. And yeah, you're absolutely right about this is like my favorite Jason Bateman role because he's very good at playing passive aggressive characters where like he'll, he can do something that's like really mean and then he'll just be like, I'm just kidding. And you like sort of believe that he's kidding. And he's really good at playing that sort of character. And this movie makes really good use of him in that role. And uh, yeah, I wish there were more like, so I wish Blumhouse would do more solid little thrillers like this rather than just like, high concept horror things because I, I really dig this movie. This feels like a Ben movie. Ben, have you seen The Gift? I have seen The Gift. I The whole time that you've been talking, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out what the actual twists are and I cannot remember because I also watched it on a plane probably around <laughs> 2016 or 2017 and I haven't really thought about it since. I remember all, everything about the setup and I remember all of the actors being very good in it or me enjoying their performances at least, but I cannot remember the plotting of it. So maybe I will just use this as an opportunity to revisit the gift. Uh, it's streaming on Netflix right now. So the opportunity is there. Uh, I watched uh, black Panther and Dr. Strange, two of my favorite Marvel movies, both streaming on Disney plus uh, black Panther. Uh, it, it is such a socially responsible, invigorating thing. I mean, I love the Marvel movies when they're just being fun adventures, but this one has so much on its mind and Killmonger as a villain uh, the fact that it makes you reckon with the fact that you know um, the the method <laughs> may be incorrect, but his but his overall mission is something that makes total sense. I really wish more Marvel movies had a villain um, who made the hero question his own decisions, quite like Black Panther. In Doctor Strange, um, people have a little mix in this one. It's actually one of my favorite Marvel movies flat out. Um, I'm a sucker for Doctor Strange as a character. And I think Scott Derrickson, is, as a filmmaker, is genuinely interested in spiritualism and our relationship to the unknown. And he really infuses the movie with that at all times. And I'm very curious to see what a sequel directed by Sam Raimi, who's a you know a more lunatic filmmaker, does. Because I think Doctor Strange could stand to be a bit more... Because Sam, Sam have a lot more lunacy than I think uh, Derrickson employs here. But I think Doctor Strange holds up really well. And I like it a lot. Uh, Netflix, uh, Kill Bill Volume 1, uh, streaming there alongside Volume 2. I've cooled a little bit on Volume 1 uh, when, I, when I watched it again this week. I still like it a lot. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like I'm glad Tarantino got this movie out of his system because it's so chock full of references and homages to things that he loves. They feel like he's just shaking off, you know, a lot of things, like all the things he wanted to do. Like, oh, I dream of doing this, I dream of doing that. It's all here. Kill Bill is this massive epic, and it's just... I'm, 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 I think he's aged into a better filmmaker. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Inglorious Bastards, uh, even Hateful Eight, uh, J Django represent a fully formed voice, whereas Kill Bill is him playing through things that he likes a lot, and, and that's really fun to watch. Uh, but I feel like, especially as Kill Bill is split in two, the emotional catharsis of part two is non-existent in part one, which means it plays just like a series of gags as opposed to a complete movie. So I... When I was younger, this movie was amazing. I, I still think it's a lot of fun. Uh, but as we've seen more of Tarantino and as, as he's grown up, I realize that this is probably low-end Tarantino. Am, am I crazy? How do you guys feel about Volume 1 now? Uh, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, of all the Tarantino movies, the, the ones I feel least inclined to revisit are 
both Kill Bill movies and Reservoir Dogs. I don't think they're bad movies. They're they're both uh, very entertaining. You know, they have great dialogue, which is like all Tarantino films. They have inventive filmmaking, and you know, they're they're good movies, but. They're the ones I'm like the least interested in in watching again. You know, when when Kill Bill came out, I was all over it, but now I I, I barely like ever think about it. Honestly, these days, it's like on the the lower end for me. Uh, hey, well, speaking <laughs> of movies, uh, I think hold up really well. Uh, we talked about one recently. I think I think I know Ben is a big fan of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Currently Hell streaming, yes. yeah, <laughs> currently streaming on Netflix. Yeah. I know Raiders of Lost Ark is probably the better movie. It's in my top ten of all time. It is a full fledged film. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, though, I can watch it over and over again. I, it beat for beat, scene by scene. It is such a good time at the movies. It is uh, like if this is Spielberg operating on like I'm gonna make a I'm gonna just go have fun mode, and see Spielberg having fun has more visual wit, more ingenuity, like more like blood in its veins than like so many other movies, like virtually every other movie ever made. Indiana Jones, as you say, has the best action set pieces of the entire Indiana Jones series. I can go on on about the Venice boat chase, the uh, motorcycle chase, the um, Indiana Jones hanging off the tank at the end. Uh, he chose poorly, maybe one of the most quoted lines of all time. It is just a flat out perfect piece of entertainment. Uh, if Raiders... Like, I think you could dig in the Raiders and talk about, you know, his Silver's intentions as a filmmaker and what Raiders does uh, as a uh, pastiche of past pulp ideas and a young Jewish guy working out his feelings about World War II uh, through adventure films. Whereas Last Crusade is just a good time. And I don't think there's a deep reading to be had here other than Spiel- Spielberg being a friggin' wizard. Uh, Indy Jones Last Crusade, uh, it is just... I would watch this movie 10 times in a row and not get bored of it. It, it is a, it's a blast. I don't understand uh, people that hate on this movie. Do they really? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Like people, uh, Raiders, like purists or something. I don't know. They seem to like Temple of Doom the, for some reason, but they don't the, like. The biggest complaint I've seen, and I don't agree with it, is that it's just like a rehash of Raiders because, you know, he's fighting Nazis again. But it's so much fun. And uh, I agree that it's not the best in the Angels movies, but it's like the I think the most entertaining of the entire series. I mean, I think Raiders is a better movie, but this is, it's just so much fun. And I don't like Temple of Doom at all. I know a lot of people do, but I just don't care for Temple of Doom. Yeah. Temple yeah. of Doom's a mess. I, I agree on that front. And also, I, I just want to add that uh, Sean Connery is Indy's dad is so inspired. And after two movies of people essentially worshiping at Indian Jones's feet, like he's the coolest guy in the room everybody's scared of him everybody admires him everybody has a everybody's angry at him having a father figure who is so disappointed in him at every turn and, and does not find him cool in the slightest it's such a brilliant choice it's such a funny dynamic i love it so much um finally a movie that uh a much smaller movie this is the furies an australian horror film um from director and writer tony aquino it is streaming on shutter uh, shutter actually bought it it's a, it's a shutter exclusive and this is one of the things i've we, we put on my wife and I during one of our drinking are we drinking sessions and it's 82 minutes long and it flies and it's surprisingly okay. There are some big plotting issues and it, yes, it makes some logical leaps that, um, that I, that you will be able to, the movie never really answers for, but it's, it's a surprisingly fun, solid time. The basic gist is a group of women wake up in boxes in the middle of the woods and are being hunted by mass killers. But the twist is that, um, not only are they being recorded uh, for some sick TV show, essentially, 
but each killer is tasked with protecting one girl and they will be executed if they don't protect their girl. So the idea being that it's it being this weird dynamic where um, uh, the girls realize that one of these masked killers is going to, is going to be fighting tooth and nail to save them while trying to kill everybody else. So it ends up being this really bizarre dynamic uh, where the women are trying to team up, but also gaming gets each other to survive. And, the violence in this movie is gnarly. Um, there are some gore gags in this movie that like made me stand upright. Like, where did that come from? It's one of those movies where um, I feel like horror fans are going to discover these these kills and talk about them because they're so well executed and so upsetting and gross and shocking. Uh, I feel like anyone, if they want to hear us seeing the Furies, it's Chris. Have you seen the Furies? I have seen the Furies, and I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. It's it's actually like. <laughs> the better version of the hunt because the hunt has almost the same setup where people wake up and there are boxes and they're being chased. And this is so I, so much better than that movie. And uh, it definitely has problems, but the, the gore is uh, very top notch gore. If you're into practical effects gore and not, you know, the terrible trend now where all blood is done via CGI, uh, this, this is your film. Yeah. That's the theory streaming on shutter. And that's, that's all she wrote for me. Okay. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I finally saw Little Women, the new Little Women from Greta Gerwig, because I, I got sent the Blu-ray. And boy, uh, I don't have much new to add to this, but pretty much everything everyone said about this movie is correct. It's just a an utter delight. And also it made me like cry 5,000 times just <laughs> over and over again. Um, I, I'm a big Greta Gerwig fan. I actually do not like ladybird though i know a lot of people love ladybird but i found it kind of i don't want to say insufferable but it just was not for me i I like bits and pieces of it but i just did not care for it overall but this is like a million times better than that um i have to say i never really got the timothy chalamet thing until this movie and watching it i was like all right i get why why people like this guy now because of his his work in this movie and just everyone is so good in it. Florence Pooh is so good in uh, just everyone from top to bottom. And uh, I've actually never seen any other versions of little women. This is like the first one I've ever seen. So I didn't know the story at all going into it. So everything about it was just fresh to me. And I don't know. It's just a, it's, I don't want to say it's a feel good movie because it's, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's very sad and, and weepy, but it's just so like full of life and energy that it just made me feel good while watching it. So yes, I know I'm very late to the party, but uh, if you like me have yet to see little women believe the hype and, and finally watch it because it's so good. Very cool. And that was the only thing you saw this week. I've seen other things. That's all I feel like talking about little women. Okay, <laughs> Chris, do you think it would have made your top 10 if you'd seen? Yeah, I'm, I'm really kicking myself because if I had seen this last year, uh, it definitely would have been in my top 10. So I know I, I don't know why you didn't listen to me, Chris, because I, I listened just to you didn't and have a chance. Glory. I didn't have a chance to see it. <laughs> All right. I'm glad you loved it. And this yeah. is the best version of Little Woman, by the way, the best adaptation. So uh, it, the other ones are good, but this is I'm glad that you saw this one and loved it as much as you did. It's so good. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, speaking of movies that we really love from last year, I, my wife and I rewatched Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I've talked about one 
billion times on this podcast already, so I have nothing else to add except this movie is a goddamn masterpiece, and I love every single second of it. It's available on Hulu right now, which is why we watched it. We were in desperate need of some good news and some good in our lives after the hellscape of of March, and uh, seeing that Portrait became available on Hulu um, to stream was uh, exactly what we needed in that moment. So I, I encourage everyone, uh, if you've not seen this yet, definitely check it out. It's on Hulu right now. Uh, I also watched The Long Good Friday for the first time. This is a British gangster movie starring Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren. It is really strange to see a very, very young Helen Mirren in this movie. Um, this movie came out in 1979, 1980. I guess there's some uh, <laughs> some controversy about when it was actually finished and released, but... Um, yeah, this movie, Bob Hoskins plays a gangster who is basically trying to, uh, th- like, the Olympics are coming to London, and he is trying to, he's a businessman who is trying to uh, form a partnership with the mafia from America and try to redevelop some land in London to have it ready for when the Olympics roll through and all of them are supposed to make, you know, tons and tons of money, uh, you know, if this deal goes through, basically. But uh, the... Um, the IRA, the the Irish, uh, what, what is that called? The the Irish, what does that stand for? Irish Republican, Republican Army. Republican Army, yes, uh, has some different ideas about what exactly uh, should be going on here. So they they seem to have a vendetta against Bob Hoskins' character, and they start like taking out his guys one by one at this time where this deal is is in a very precarious place, and uh, he is. Bob Hoskins is so, so good in this movie. I, I mean, I mostly know him from his work in, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Hook and, like, all these movies that I watched when I was a kid, and I hadn't really seen him, aside from, like, Brazil and maybe a couple other things, I hadn't really seen Bob Hoskins in, like, full-on adult sort of scary mode, like this, you know, where where you should take him seriously as, like, a, a, a credible threat of an actor kind of guy, and that's exactly what he is in this movie, and he is... Um, Man, he just feels like he's seconds away from exploding at every moment. There's like a volatility to his character that is really um, sort of invigorating to watch. Seems like a weird phrase to invoke there. But it really was like kind of an amazing um, re-characterization of of my opinion of Bob Hoskins. So I would definitely recommend this to anybody who likes gangster movies. Um, you know, it, it was made, like I said, in, in like 1980 or something. So the, the pacing is like a little slower than people are probably used to. I don't know if I would recommend this as just like anybody off the street, just dive in and check this out, but it's on the Criterion channel right now. And, um, if you like Bob Hoskins, if you like Helen Mirren, if you like gangster movies, uh, the long good Friday is, um, it's the business. Has anybody else seen this by any chance? Uh, I haven't. Yeah, it's great. Bob Hoskins is so, so good in this. Yeah, it's worth it just for his performance alone, really. Um, speaking of the Criterion Channel, I also watched a movie that I'd never heard of before called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Has anybody here heard of this? It's a 1926 German animated movie. Anyway. I have. Okay. I've seen this. Oh, you have seen. Oh, well, I guess, HG, you're, you're the least surprising person on this podcast that, that uh, <laughs> would know about this. But it's directed by uh, this woman named Lottie Reininger, I think is how you pronounce her name. And... Um, like I said, it came out in 1926, so it's it's really like considered one of the oldest animated feature films ever. It came out, you know, more than 10 years before Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And uh, Reininger, like, essentially 
invented a version of the multiplane camera, which is what Walt Disney and, and all those guys used to sort of add layers and, and depths to their animation. And this movie is... Uh, since it came out in the mid 20s uh, the plotting of it which is basically just a it's a retelling of some stories from 1001 nights um it's a little reductive in terms of like uh you know there's that line in aladdin where princess jasmine is like i'm not some prize to be won every woman in this movie is a prize to be won so like if you're watching it for you know any sort of insight into <laughs> modern culture you're doing it wrong but uh if you're watching this just as like a um an incredible uh, piece of filmmaking history. That's the way to look at this thing. And the most impressive thing about it is just how beautiful it is. Um, she like hand cut every frame of this movie out. It's all done through like, um, HT, what would you call it? It's, it's almost like a shadow work or something. Yeah, like... It's something similar to shadow puppetry, which is a traditional form of like puppetry used in a lot of East Asian countries and each East Asian cultures. Um, but the animation technique is actually called silhouette animation. And, um, Reininger actually invented this for this film. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Like the, the level of detail that she employs here to cut out, you know, like palm trees and ferns and like every little tiny thing of it's just like super super intricate and um hair and the way that people and and uh, trees and birds and animals move there's like a a sorcerer who turns into animals and like the way that that happens is like so fluid compared to uh the whole rest of the the movie but it's, it's really like an incredible piece of uh of animation to watch and i'd never even heard of it before so if anybody out there is interested in animation and you subscribe to criterion channel um peter i know you're like a huge animation buff so have you ever seen this it no i haven't worth checking out for you um so yeah it's called the the adventures of prince ahmed if you're interested in that uh i also watched happy death day i know that yes. um yeah chris and <laughs> yeah. brad and, and yeah. uh, a bunch of people on this podcast really like these movies a lot um they're on hbo go right now uh, that's how i've watched them hbo now whatever you have um i've not gotten I'm, i definitely plan on watching happy death day to you pretty soon but uh i enjoyed this movie i, I skipped it the first you know first time around i, I didn't really i don't know I, I guess i was just not super impressed with the idea of the groundhog day conceit being applied to a horror movie but uh i don't know why i had that <laughs> that um uh mindset going into it because when i just sort of gave this movie a fair shake i ended up enjoying it a lot i think uh jessica roth who stars in it um you know her character is so so annoying in the very beginning of this first movie and it's on purpose because she's supposed to be a terrible person and she's very very good at playing a terrible person and as the movie goes on and she goes through you know, multiple scenarios in which she's trying to discover who her killer is after getting murdered every day. Uh, she slowly becomes a better person and um, you can see her change as an actress. And since I wasn't familiar with her at all, you know, my first impression of her was the first few minutes of this movie where she's like really awful and like rolling her eyes and doing fake smiles and just being like a complete like idiot and, and an awful person to everyone. And I was like, Oh no, do I actually hate this actress? And the, no, I just hated that version of this character. So uh, yeah, she, she ended up really impressing me by the time this whole thing was, was said and done. Um, I, I love the, the final set piece. It takes place in this old clock tower that just feels like, even though this thing 
you know, is set on a college campus. It feels like it, like the very end of Tim Burton's Batman or something. It feels like this clock tower just stretches up into infinity and like is in this, you know, gothic um, sort of setting instead of uh, at, a, at a very normal looking college campus. So uh, anyway, yeah, Happy Death Day is enjoyable. And uh, I look forward to, to checking in with the sequel and reporting back on that. Yeah, the uh, the sequel is is even better. Ben. Oh so man, sure. and, and Jessica Roth is I can't I don't understand why she's not a bigger star because she's such a a great actress, especially in these movies, and it, it really boggles my mind that she's not like a a bigger star because she's so good in these. Yeah, she's she's great, and also uh, Ben, you'll you'll enjoy to hear that. Uh, the sequel is essentially the Gremlins two to this one is Gremlins one. It's, it's that big of a crazy tonal shift. It's great. Awesome. Yeah, the great thing about the sequel just suddenly becomes a sci-fi movie, and it's perfect. I, I, you know, as this ended, I'm like, how in the hell are they making a sequel to this? And I don't remember watching a trailer or anything. I don't even know the premise of the sequel, or I don't remember it. So I'm, I'm excited to dive into that essentially fresh and just uh, go on whatever wild ride they have lined up for me. Um, I also saw Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which is a new movie that I think is available uh, on VOD right now, um, or, or if not right now, then very, very soon, because it was supposed to be coming out in theaters. It played at Sundance earlier this year. Uh, Chris and I did not see it there, um, but uh, it was supposed to be coming out in theaters um, from Focus Features, and then obviously coronavirus sort of put a stop to that whole thing. I think it maybe played in a couple theaters for like a few days, but it, it didn't get a fair shake um, because uh, everything has been shut down. So I, I just wanted to put this movie on people's radars. Um, it's written and directed by a filmmaker named Eliza Hitman, and it is basically about this, uh, this young girl who's 17. She lives in Pennsylvania, and she uh, wants to get an abortion and can't do that in her area. So she and her cousin go to New York City to try to um, get this abortion. And it, it's... Uh, a little bit harrowing some of the stuff that she has to go through and it's, it's very um you know i think like one of the big uh positives of the movie i think it won a prize for neorealism at sundance and and that's like one of the biggest positives of the film is that it, it sort of takes you on a, like a step-by-step journey of like what it is actually like for people to try to get abortions in this country um which you know i know i realize it does not sound like a fun watch and i wouldn't really categorize this as a fun watch but i would categorize it as a really impressive movie by a female director um who i think her name should be more known to people uh after this and i'm just so unfortunate i'm so like uh I feel so bad that that all of this happened. The timing is so bad. I mean, obviously there are terrible things happening in the world, but one of the you know much less terrible things is that uh, the director and and people who put such work into such a good movie are, are not going to be able to um, you know use this film as the launch pad that people are typically able to use indie films you know, to, to sort of burgeon their careers and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I hope that people have a chance to check it out on VOD. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Sydney Flanagan, who I believe this is her first movie. Um, she plays the lead and she is uh, really good. Like a very, she reminded me a little bit of like a young Mary Elizabeth Winsett. So um, good stuff. It's called never rarely, sometimes always. And then uh, finally, I watched the first two episodes of Apple TV Plus's Home Before Dark. This is the first Apple TV Plus show that I've watched. Uh, John Chu, who's directing In the Heights and who directed uh, Crazy Rich Asians, directs this show. And the premise is basically, uh, it's based on 
the uh, reporting of a very young journalist named Hildy Lysiak, I think. And uh, Brooklyn Prince stars in this, and she's the girl from The Florida Project. Um, and she plays like this nine-year-old girl who... Uh, along with her family, moves back to her dad's hometown and realizes that her dad was embroiled in some sort of, uh, you know, um, drama there. There was like a, a missing kid. And there's all sorts of like it's a very small town that they move to. So everybody knows everybody. And there's lots of whispers and rumors. And, and her dad is like um, intimately involved with some uh, harrowing goings on that happened back in the day. And this little nine year old girl uh, who is like, Harriet the Spy and Veronica Mars rolled up into one is uh, is tasked with, you know, is compelled to find out and solve the mystery of what happened to her dad. Um, Jim Sturgis plays her dad, and he he's always really good. Uh, Lewis Hertham, who's in Westworld, plays the police chief. Um, Abby Miller's on this as well. Joel Carter from Justified. So it has a good cast. Um, I, I think the only knock that you might be able to give, uh, you know, sort of toward the series is that, like, it can be a little precocious at times, and I have a very, very low tolerance for that. Um, but I, I think ultimately there's enough good here to to keep me going in the series. It's It's really stylishly directed. I love the look of it. There's some animation that gets mixed in here and there. Um, the little girl is obsessed with uh, all the president's men. She quotes it all the time and has seen it something like 36 times in the show. So uh, yeah, it's called Home Before Dark. That comes out on Apple TV Plus this Friday. So check that out. Is this the first Apple TV Plus show that you've watched? It is, yeah. And I I, I got screeners for it because I may be uh, interviewing the director. But um, so that's the reason that sort of like uh, spurred me to watch this thing. I'm not convinced that I would have watched it of my own volition, uh, at least immediately. It might have been something that I would have checked out, you know, eventually. But um, I, I'm glad that uh, I had the I was forced to watch it because I, I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to, yeah, maybe finishing this series. I think there's going to be 10 episodes in the first season. And then um, maybe clicking around and seeing what else Apple TV Plus has to offer. So uh, I'll report back if I do that. Yeah. HT, what have you been watching? I started watching Little Fires Everywhere, which is the new Hulu series starring Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington and based off of this novel by the same name by Celeste Ng. And um, I've only watched the first two episodes of this so far. It's currently airing, so um, it releases a new episode every week. I think they're at episode five now. But I really like this series. It's um, It stars uh, Witherspoon and Carrie Washington as two mothers from uh, very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Reese Witherspoon is the very typical uh, white suburban housewife uh, and um, who is uh, very much a perfectionist. And Carrie Washington is the new uh, neighbor in town who moves into this sort of idyllic suburb of Ohio and um, comes in from New York. And she's an artist who sort of roams around for her work and um, is a single mother. And her daughter soon befriends the son of Reese Witherspoon's character, and they kind of these these, these two families get intertwined in ways that are really fascinating and um, deals really well with the uh, complex navigation of uh, race and microaggressions uh, and just kind of that class disparity that uh, is very that many movies and shows find difficulty tack tackling, but Little Fires Everywhere does so well. And I just want to rave about Reese Witherspoon a little bit because she's just fantastic, so brilliant in this series. Um, I had expected when I was when I started watching it to be a pretty serious series for the subject matter that it tackles um, and how it kind of it 
basically more of a straight drama is what I assumed it would be. But Reese Witherspoon gives an almost comedic performance. She's almost like the self-aware, self-effacing version of that perfect suburban housewife. And it's almost like she's playing Tracy Flick as if she's softened a little bit and become a mother. And she's this perfectionist who schedules every aspect of her and her husband and her children's lives, even like scheduled the, the sex that her husband ha and her have. And um, she's incredibly uptight, but she plays it in such a way that it's just, it's really funny that, and, and like it, it recreates so much of the stereotypes and like things that we have in mind for that suburban uh, white housewife, but she she does it so, so well. There's like, there's one scene in episode two where she and Carrie Washington's character are finally starting to warm to each other after having a lot of prickly encounters and they're drinking and talking about, um, Harry Washington's talking about like this series on her own vagina that she had done and Reese Witherspoon just, uh, just like gasped and uh, it, it was a photo series and she gasped and says, photos. And the way she says it is just so funny. Um, I have heard comparisons to this and Big Little Lies. I haven't seen Big Little Lies yet, um, but I've heard favorable comparisons. People say that this uh, is Big Little Lies, but done in a way that it actually tackles race and uh, does, and um, speaks to those issues in a much more uh, full, complex way. So uh, Little Fires Everywhere. It's really, really fantastic. It's just so well written. And um, I can't wait to see more of it. And that is on Hulu now. And another series I started watching, um, this is a series that I reviewed for the site. It's called, called Tower of God. And it's an anime series that is one of Crunchyroll's new original titles. Crunchyroll is a longtime anime streaming platform that is soon now getting into the originals field and one of their first originals is tower of god it is a fantasy adventure series based off of a south korean webtoon that has a pretty big following already but um this is the first anime adaptation of it and uh i remember seeing the trailer for the country roll originals and tower of god is the one that actually caught my eye immediately because it's really really gorgeously animated it's done the animation style is uh, almost looks like it's hand-drawn sketches or uh, that have come to life and they use a mixture of 2d and 3d animations such that it like has this artificial feeling and like brings the, the colors really make, makes the colors really pop but uh, it's uh, it's really gorgeously animated the story itself um, I'm only allowed to talk about the first episode is kind of still left under a mystery which was a little frustrating it kind of unfolds a lot like a video game in which this character doesn't really know anything and he uh enters this mysterious tower which is the whole world um of this series and the tower basically ascends to like the heavens or something and each tower is a whole a uh, continent sized world that has different environments and the more the higher you ascend by doing different battles and tests uh the higher up on like the tower's hierarchy it is it's like a whole society built with, within this mysterious tower and it's ruled by the people at the top of the tower and um so it's just kind of it's I can't really say much about the plot right now because I'm not really sure what the plot is, but it's just this character who's trying <laughs> to send the tower to, to find his best friend. And uh, but it's really, really gorgeous, uh, gorgeously animated. So it has um, it's streaming. It just debuted today on Crunchyroll, and that is Tower of God. Um, and I another series that I watched a few screeners for uh, is called Tales from the Loop, and that's, this is a new Amazon sci-fi series. I'm, I'm excited to hear you talk about this. I know you wrote a review for the site, but I wanted to hear you talk about this because I know I 
years ago got a book of like this art that uh, inspired this show. And I was so excited Matt Reeves came on to produce this as a TV series. So I'm wondering, like, what, what did you think? I liked it a lot, but uh, it took me a while to warm to it. Uh, this is a, a sci-fi series based off of the art by Simon Stallenhag. He's a Swedish artist who's known for doing sort of retro-futuristic art pieces that look like water, like like oil paintings, and they often depict really lonely Swedish countryside with uh, often a desolate piece of technology looming over it. And um, the series definitely takes a lot of cues from that, especially in the visual aspect. It is really, really gorgeous too. It's it's very striking the way that they've built this retrofuturistic world. So Tales from the Loop is set in this uh, alternate reality uh, of um, an, a small town that is built above a facility called the Loop. And in this facility is a machine that is being researched or developed that can essentially turn any science fiction concepts into reality. So, so, so things like time travel, uh, alternate dimensions, etc. And uh, Tales from the Loop, I actually, the screeners I got for it were actually not in order. I got episodes one, three, and five, which was a little bit strange to me. It is, it is an anthology series, but it is, it centers around one family. Um, so the family uh, that is a, the family of the creator of the loop uh, are kind of the central figures of this but the, the each episode focuses on a different character either in the family or in the small town and I wasn't really sure what to make of this series at first because I was a little confused by just like the story jumping around between episodes but uh, it's really um, I was really taken with it uh, because the way that they use the sci-fi premise is that they don't focus on the sci-fi as much. They instead choose to tell these really human and humanistic stories with the sci-fi premise. The sci-fi is almost relegated to the background. Um, the first episode talk, uh, tackles a young girl whose mother suddenly goes missing, and she finds that she may have been transported into the future and um, may meet her older self actually and it deals with parenthood and uh parental and absentee parents and um the second the other episode that i saw uh was uh dealt with grief and uh the process of aging and the last episode i saw which i i was really taken with i absolutely love this episode it might be one of my favorite episodes of tv that i've seen in a while uh dealt with alternate dimensions and uh sort of the the romantic this romantic loneliness um and isolation. And uh, I, I don't want to go too, too much into detail about it, but uh, I really love how poetic and subdued, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit on the slow burning side, but it uh, it is really just um, transporting. How, you mentioned that it's an anthology series, but it's, mm-hmm. it seems like it must connect. It does connect, because um, it's not entirely anthology. It's not, it's separate stories, that are set in the same town and seem to follow the same people around, but it's focused on different characters. So um, I don't really know why they, they sent me screeners that are not in order, but um, it seems like <laughs> it's, it seems like they're, they're more focused on just like the, the, the episodic, like the single stories versus an, an overall overarching narrative. Interesting. And you watch space jam. Yes. Okay. So um 
my friends and I, uh, my roommate and I will often host movie watching nights. And since um, all my friends in New York are social distancing right now, we decided to hold a movie night and host it on this app called Netflix Party. You guys might have heard it's a Chrome extension and it allows you to basically share a screen and have a little chat box as you're watching uh, one movie together. And some some person hosts that and can control like how, which movie you're watching and stuff. And so um, for this movie marathon, I volunteered Mask of Zorro, my roommate volunteered Space Jam. And so we did a marathon of those two movies. And I, as we were watching Space Jam, I realized that I actually had never seen Space Jam in full. I've only watched uh, bits and pieces of it when it was on cable. And I never really was interested in it because I hate sports. So I was like, I don't care about Looney Tunes if he's playing basketball. But um, uh, this is uh, so this is my first time watching this movie in full. And uh, it's it's like it's crazy. It's uh, it's very much feels like a premise that was dreamed up either by a very sugar high five year old or by a bunch of executives who are like, what do kids like Looney Tunes? basketball, Michael Jordan, let's throw them all together. Um, my friend commented that this is, it's basically just who framed Roger Rabbit, Rabbit, but less committed. None of the logic of this movie makes sense. None of the, the basketball players can really act. Michael Jordan is trying his best. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun to watch. And it was especially fun to watch uh, with a bunch of people, some of which who hadn't seen before and some of which you had. Um, and I could see why if, people are so in love with this, but watching it as an adult, I was like, oh yeah, this is a, a crazy film that makes no sense in a world logic sense. But um, yeah, Space Jam, it's, it's fun. It was, a, it was a fun time at the movies. And um, I also watched Mask of Zorro again, which um, I was inspired by Ben watching it. I think it was Ben watching it last week. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't seen it since it first came out. And uh, I was, uh, I just, it's great. It's a it's a perfect movie. Uh, everyone is just so hot in it. And now I can understand all the sexual innuendo. <laughs> so yeah, um, Masked was great. And um, other things I watched for the first time uh, were is The Rocketeer. So, oh, wow. Your first time watching I know, this. I had actually never seen this. So this is, there's actually a little story going into this as well, um, is that um, my other podcast that I do with two of my friends, we decided to bring back this recurring feature that we do in which we recommend each the other two a movie that they haven't seen before and that we love. So since we're in quarantine, what better time to recommend movies to each other and just kind of chat about those movies. So the movies that my friends recommended to me were The Rocketeer and West Side Story. And um, I had never seen Rocketeer before. Uh, I actually didn't know of its existence until recently. I had somehow entirely missed the boat on The Rocketeer when I was young. I had never heard of it when I was a, wow. a kid growing up on Disney. I don't know how, how but um, watching it for the first time, it's a great movie. It very much captures the the serials of the, the 30s and 40s and the superhero movies. It's basically a superhero origin movie. And even more so, this is directed by Joe Johnson. It's basically Captain America, the first Avenger. It's a very, very much a prototype for what he would do with uh, the first Avenger. And I will say, I actually like The Rocketeer better because I think it's a, it's a tighter movie um, and just like more well thought out. I feel like Captain America, the first Avenger is good, but it kind of trails off in the third act. But um, I enjoyed it a lot, except for the lead, who I can't remember the name of the actor because Billy he's Campbell. very boring. Yes. 
he was a limp noodle of a of a lead uh, and um i was not really impressed by him but the movie around him was great i really enjoyed seeing all these character actors like alan arkin Margot martindale showing up jennifer connelly looking very much like she was still a teenager from labyrinth era and yet the film kept um sort of kept objectifying her it kept insisting on object- objectifying her every time she was on screen and i was <laughs> A little bothered by that, but other uh, Joe Johnson, chill out. But other than that, I really enjoyed The Rocketeer, and um, I also saw West Side Story for the first time. Um, I was excited to see this because it was just um, always on my list. I, I've seen a lot of classic Hollywood musicals, but I somehow kind of missed watching West Side Story, and especially with Steven Spielberg's upcoming adaptation, I wanted to see it for the first time, and I was actually really amazed by how. Ex- experimental this film looks at times like I've seen quite a few classic movie musicals I love singing in the rain I love um uh guys and dolls and West Side Story which was filmed uh, which was released in 1960 I think um 1961 takes almost an art house approach to the the um, classic Hollywood musical like you'd still have your big sweeping numbers and your dance battles and um very long uh, shots that in which the dancers and the performers can uh, just do their thing. But um, a lot of the transitions and the, the color scheme of this film, especially, it's so bright and saturated. And the transitions get incredibly experimental at times. Like at one point, it goes from Maria just twirling and it, the, the screen suddenly just becomes like this red blur and turns into the... Um, and then it, it transitions into the the ballroom, and uh, it's it's incredibly. Uh, it almost feels like a um, an European art house film at points, especially in terms of like the way that it's directed and the way it's very artfully directed. So um, I uh, I really liked West Side Story, and um, I had never seen the Broadway version of this either. So I wasn't really familiar with the um, the play aside from, you know, ver- knowing very well Romeo and Juliet. And I actually quite liked the, um, how this was not really Romeo and Juliet. They were, they were part of the story, but it felt more like it was a story about the, the, the sharks versus the jets and sort of all the socioeconomic um, background and, tension that comes with that, especially the Puerto Rican immigrants and the Italian Americans. And I really liked that aspect of it and how it felt very, um, it felt like it was bringing a lot more just realism to the story and grit and grit to the story than I had seen before. And um, the only problematic part, of course, is that uh, all of the Puerto Rican actors are basically just Greek actors with brown face on, uh, with uh, with the exception of uh, Rita Moreno. Everyone is uh, either Greek or, in Natalie Wood's case, uh, Russian. So that was interesting to see. But uh, I really liked West Side Story. Hot take. West Side Story, good movie. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week? Uh, I recently got my hands on a couple new soft drinks, uh, one of them being a new flavor of Mountain Dew, which is only available at Walmart currently. It's called Mountain Dew Frostbite. And uh, the can art is really cool because it has a picture of a shark on it, and it looks like a Jaws Mountain Dew, which is pretty cool. And what's interesting is they're not really uh, open about 
advertising what the flavor is. It's not meant to be a mystery flavor, um, but it's not on like the box or the can. Usually it's set under like the whatever the like the brand name of the flavor is. It says, you know, whatever, um, you know, with the, with citrus and stuff. And on this one, it didn't taste that. But apparently the official description is a burst of icy refreshment and cool melon. And uh, the melon flavor is very subtle. If anything, it tastes a lot more like um, what I would think like a, like a blueberry Mountain Dew would be. It's actually not too dissimilar from uh, Mountain Dew Whiteout, which is a flavor that's not easily found anymore, but it is uh around different places and uh it's pretty good it's um it's not my favorite new flavor or anything and I, I wish the melon flavor was a little more prominent uh because i do like whenever they use uh melon as, as a flavor you know in soft drinks or candy uh but it's pretty good so yeah you can find it in uh 12 pa- uh 12 packs can of cans and they have uh six packs of uh bottles at walmart right now so there you go and then i also tried um Canada Dry Bold Ginger Ale, which is basically just uh, Canada Dry's normal ginger ale, but it has a little bit more bite to it. If anything, it tastes more like a ginger beer than the standard ginger ale. It's not remarkably different from regular ginger ale, though the color uh, is a little bit more uh, solid, and it has, um, like I said, you know, some some bite to it. You can actually taste the ginger a little bit more, uh, but it's um, it's it's pretty good. I would I would actually, if it's more readily available, I would get it over the traditional Canada dry ginger ale, even though I still think Canada dry ginger ale is the best, you know, standard soft drink ginger ale out there. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Brad, what have you been playing this week? Uh, so over the weekend, there was a trial preview demo for the upcoming video game predator hunting grounds. Uh, obviously it's based on the movie predator starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's essentially call of duty with predator um you either play on the a team a fire team of soldiers who are trying to complete missions uh in the middle of the jungle uh things like um taking down drug cartels uh incriminating them and finding evidence or uh planting it to make your mission you know more uh legitimate but while you're trying to complete these missions there's a predator out there that is also controlled by a player and it's trying to hunt you down and kill you. And it has all of the staple weapons of the Predator, from the gauntlets to the shoulder cannon to the camouflage and the blades. Um, and it's really fun to play. It's It was a, a demo, uh, so it was, uh, even though it was the full gameplay, it was still a demo, so some glitches here and there. Uh, but it's really fun, especially because uh, they used Alan Silvestri's score, which makes it suspenseful, as well as the awesome sound effects from the movie. As you're walking around, you you can hear like the predator's feet stomping and you can hear his camouflage turning on and off and you hear the, you know, the signature growl and everything. And it just makes it that much more terrifying when you're trying to like lay low or stay hidden and not get killed by the predator. And what's also cool about this game is it has uh, a variety of different endings. It's not just as simple as a, uh, you've killed a predator, you win game over kind of thing. Um, you can either kill, sometimes you kill the predator, but he gets a chance to, activate his self-destruct mechanism and you have to haul ass away from the predator or else the explosion will still kill you after it goes off or you can complete your mission and uh call the chopper in and get to the chopper uh (laughs) 
before the predator kills you and you can escape while the predator is still alive. And so there's, there's a variety of different ways it can go down in the end. And it was, it was a lot of fun to play. I think I'll probably end up picking it up when it comes out uh, later this month. Okay. Uh, Jacob, you mentioned you were playing some games. Uh, yeah, I mentioned earlier, but uh, Jackbox screen sharing with Zoom, uh, big winner. Uh, I think a lot of the Jackbox collections are all, if not if not discounted, they're all marked. A few of them are marked down at least right now during uh, during the uh, pandemic. So you should definitely pick those up. But also, uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, my quarantine video game is uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. After three years, I'm committed to beating it, and I've pretty much played it for a couple hours every single night this week. Uh, I'm many many hours into it, and this feels like a lifetime game. Like one of those games where like there's so much to do that if you want to pick up one game for the rest of your life, only play one game. This this could be that game for a lot of people. Uh, but yeah, it's just as good as you've heard. Uh, that's available on Nintendo Switch. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published now three times a week on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com and rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Yeah, uh, yeah, Jacob. I was thinking like maybe we could get like a like a game set. We could do like a Zoom meeting. We could do a game like a, like just the, the whole staff could play a game together. Peter, I'm not here to mess around. I'm here to tell jokes. <sighs> I'm here to open up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, cost equips, implant put downs by Lewis A. Safian. Above the page 230 from the bamboozlers section. We're all bamboozlers here. <clears throat> Chris, he never worries ahead of time. He's sure he can always double cross a bridge when he comes to it. Mm. Ben, when he's in a department store, the clerks all shake his hand to keep it out of the cash register. H.T., she comes from a family of writers. Her brother writes novels. Her sister writes songs. Her mother writes poetry. She writes bum checks. Oh. <laughs> Brad, he's very superstitious. In a fight, he always keeps his horseshoe in his glove. Mm, that's true. I do love cheating at boxing. <laughs> and Peter, he never lets a day go by without doing someone good. I've been bamboozled. <laughs> These are all excellent jokes. That last one, that last one seemed rather erotic. <laughs>